You know, I think that there's something about a father's love that is so unique. Um, spending time with my dad this week, it was just like there was a part of my heart that was more full than it usually is. And I, I, I remember this morning that we get to come into his presence every Sunday and sit next to the heart of a father who fills us up in places that we might feel absent. Let's come before him this morning. God, we are so grateful that you have the heart of a father. Lord, you have the heart of a man that we look up to in a lot of ways, Lord, that, uh, of a certain kind of love. God, that speaks to the, the innermost part of who we are. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning as we talk about your truths, Lord, that you would do it in the voice of a father. God, that you would do it in a way that, that it corrects the ways that we don't look like you. But Lord, that it is out of love. It is out of an undeniable love to see us be closer and closer to you and closer and closer to the heart of who you are. Jesus, we are so grateful for who you are. God, not of us, but of you this morning, I ask that, that you would move boldly. Lord, you get a one-on-one -on -one with your children this morning. God, there are a lot of other pieces in our lives that we manage. God, but this time we set apart so that we can hear from you. Lord, Scripture says those have, who have ears to hear it and eyes to see it are blessed. God, can we have ears to hear your words this morning? Can we have eyes to see it, Lord? And I pray that we have the courage to act upon it. God, we lay all that we are before you and we ask that you, you alone, would move in our lives. It's in the precious and holy name above all names, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. I like to say good morning when the lights go on because it's kind of like the sun rises. It's great. Um, well, good morning. Welcome to week three of Puzzled by the Bible. Um, we are in this journey looking at the biblical meta narrative, which is just a fancy word for the huge story of Scripture. And we've been comparing it to a puzzle. So we've said that all of us have probably a couple puzzle pieces in our hands. You know, maybe we have some stories, some characters, some doctrines, maybe we have some pretty important pieces like Jesus. <laughs> but when we look at the puzzle box of Scripture, we can see the bigger picture of what's going on. And so uh, you have had this card for a couple weeks. If you brought it, this is your wonderful opportunity to bring it out. If you don't have it, raise your hand. Shame, shame, everybody knows your name, and uh, <laughs> Greg will bring you a card around so that you can follow along with us. So uh, we're going to go through this chart one more time uh, this morning, just so my hope is, is that we can kind of memorize this. Uh, by the end of this series, we know it by heart. And so uh, you'll notice on this card that there are two sections, first upwards 
and downwards. And, and the first section is what we call the Old Testament. Now I'm going to write this fast and you might not even be able to read it. So hopefully you got a card. Uh, <laughs> and we have said that Old Testament is just another word for agreement or contract. And so this is the old agreement with God. And the second line would be the New Testament, which is the new agreement with God. Good. <laughs> um, and we start in the beginning of time with God and man in the garden. Following that, in Genesis 3, we see sin and Satan are introduced into the world. Genesis 3, it didn't take us very long to hit that one. Uh, then next, we see that the world is judged and purified. And this happens through a, sorry, spelling and speaking at the same time. That's a difficulty. Uh, the world is judged and purified, and that happens through the flood. After that, we see that the world is united, and this happens at the Tower of Babel, when we decide that we can build a tower up to God and that we can rule ourselves, and we don't need God. And much like all of these other things, we fall flat on our face. <laughs> After that, we have the 12 tribes of Israel and God's holy people. That would be Abraham and his lineage, what Pastor, Elizabeth, or Pastor Valerie talked about last week. And then at the pinnacle of creation, we have Jesus Christ. And the beauty of this picture is that it mirrors this, itself in the New Testament in reverse order. So instead of the 12 tribes, we have the 12 disciples and God's holy people, which, in case you were wondering, that's you guys. At least some days, right? Uh, <laughs> after that, Revelations talks about the world being united again. World united. After that, the world is judged and purified. And this time it says, not only with water, but this will be with fire, and the Lord will refine the earth where everything that doesn't look like him will diminish. And because of that, sin and Satan, they exit. Woohoo, right? That sounded really exciting. <laughs> Hopefully we get there before he gets here, okay. Um, and then the last one was God and man in paradise, and only this time it is God and redeemed man in paradise. And so there's this beautiful picture of the, the meta-narrative of Scripture. And this morning, we're going to go after what Valerie talked about. I'm sorry, I'm going to call her Elizabeth all morning. I haven't seen my friend for like two weeks. Uh, my hair is curly because I miss her, okay? Uh, so anyway, <laughs> Valerie talked about Abraham and the promises that God promised Abraham. And he said, I will make you a great nation and I will give you a great land. And so between Abraham and where we're going today, some big things happen that we got to know about. And that big thing is mainly Joseph. So Joseph is a man who was born out of the Abraham lineage. And when he's born, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced sibling rivalry. Okay, this is like sibling rivalry to the nth degree. Uh, his brothers get together and they sell him into slavery. Like, I don't care how competitious you are with your, your siblings, this, this is bad, okay? And they sell him into slavery, and he not only gets to be a slave, he's an Egyptian slave. And so years pass, and the nation of Israel, they experience a famine. 
where they can't harvest any grain from their land. So they end up going to Egypt and saying, hey guys, can I borrow a cup of sugar, essentially? Uh, but that usually looks like, can I live in your land and eat some of your food? And because Joseph had worked his way up in the political hierarchy, he is now Pharaoh's assistant. And so the Israelites get to live in Egypt. And they get protected because they know a guy up top, right? But what happens to Joseph is what happens to all of us. He dies at the ripe age of 110. Um, he dies, and he leaves the Israelites who are camping in Egypt completely vulnerable. And it says in his dying words in Genesis 50, verse 24, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in Joseph's dying words, he reminds the Israelites of a promise. He says, God's not done with you. There's still a promised land ahead of us. And that's like a beautiful moment, and Genesis closes, and we're all wonderful and happy about it. And then you turn one page to Exodus chapter 1, and by the eighth verse, this is what we got. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the, his people, and I kind of like this because I have a lot of look moments with people, you know, with, you know, children or friends where you're like, look, this has got to change. And Pharaoh says, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Yikes. And things get real ugly, real quickly. And they stay ugly for a really long time, actually 400 years. And this isn't like a really long time that we can even have a concept of. This isn't like the last 30 seconds on the microwave long time. This is four centuries. So at best, there was somebody that said that Joseph was his great, 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 great grandpa. 400 years later, after a guy reminds him of this promise, we find Moses who is finally going to make good on God's promise. And that's where we pick up the story today, is that Moses, 400 years later, 400 years of slavery. Now, we're going to look at this story a little differently because it's very familiar in our culture. Uh, you might have seen like an old school movie with some tablets and some really great hair. Um, you might have seen like some felt pictures in Sunday school class. But what I want to do is look at this story from a 30,000-foot view and say, what are the big lessons that we learn through Moses and the Israelites? And I would say that we learn three never statements, three things that you should never do. So the first thing is never confuse in charge with in control. Never confuse in charge with in control. Do you know the difference between in charge and in control? Uh, if you've worked customer service for any amount of time, you know the difference. Uh, because when somebody gets upset with you and is like threatening to throw some hot coffee in your face, and they say those loving words, I need to speak to a manager, 
you know the difference between in charge and in control. You're like, no, nah, they're in control. They can fix it. And sometimes I think we get these things confused. Other areas where in control and in charge happen are like a babysitter. Anybody ever hire a babysitter before? They are in charge, right? Maybe for a few hours. Uh, but they're not in control, are they? And they're not in control of the growth and development of your children. That's your job. And if you've done the job for more than five minutes, you realize you're not in control either, right? <laughs> There's a huge difference between in charge and in control. And what we catch here in this story is that God did not relinquish control when he put mankind in charge of the earth. Let me read that one more time. It says, God did not relinquish control when he put mankind in charge of the earth. And what we see in the Israelites and in Moses is that they confuse those things very often. Uh, very often. Moses thinks that he is in control. This week you were invited to read Exodus 1 through 4 and 20. And you would have read that Moses tries to be in control and he kills an Egyptian. Whoops. <laughs> right? And then he runs off into the desert and we don't hear from Moses for some 40 years. And just when we think that God is done with Moses because he messed up really big, God hits this holy reset button in Exodus 3, verse 5. It says, Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at God. Why? Shame. And then it continues on, verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? To which God explained, Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? And Moses learns the difference between in charge and in control. Uh, God says, I am who I am. And I am in control. And you're in charge of this. And I love how D.L. Moody, he, he summarizes Moses' life really concisely and beautifully. He says, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. And, and there... There is this lesson that all of us need to come to grips with. That God, when he is at his best in my life, I'm at my best. Uh, when I am most surrendered to his will and his purposes, that's when I'm functioning how I'm made to function. And so it has nothing to do with your qualification or how good you are. And it has everything to do with how much you surrender before Jesus. And if, if Moses learning this lesson isn't good enough, Pharaoh learned this lesson. Uh, scripture says that the Israelites started to outnumber the Egyptians. This was getting out of control. And he said, I'm going to be in control. And he enslaves them. Uh, he, to take it a step further, there's a prophecy that a boy will rise up and overthrow his government. So he says, dump all of the baby boys in the Nile kill them all off. Only he misses one. And that one 
just happens to be Moses. And the person that finds Moses just happens to be Pharaoh's daughter. You want to talk about in charge versus in control? No matter what Pharaoh did, God was still in control, right? And continuing on throughout that story, you see the ten plagues that are brought against the nation of Egypt. And each one of those plagues are personal attacks against Pharaoh's gods. No matter how much Pharaoh tried to be in control, he never really was. And so this is a good point to ask yourself, are you living in control or in charge? Are you living in control or in charge? Because you have been given some really great things. Uh, Parents, God is calling you to teach your children about God. Are you in charge or are you in control of that? In control looks like forcing them into a church routine and hoping it sticks. In charge means taking the time to explain the realities of Scripture to your kids. You know, uh, when you work a job, you are called to lead in a holy way. In control means, you know, keeping your head down, doing your work, getting it done, and not making waves. In charge looks like being a great worker and loving and encouraging and living like Christ in the workplace. Are you in charge or are you in control? You know, I think about this in terms of money. You were given money, and in charge looks like trusting God regardless. In control means racking up debt. Uh, It means racking up wealth just for the sake of it. You're calling. You were called with a specific purpose. And what you do with that calling matters. Are you in charge of it? Do you say, Lord, whatever happens, I'll still follow you? Or are you in control? And control looks more like, well, if it's convenient, I'll do it. In charge and in control is a very important thing to know the difference of. And the difference between in control and in charge is where you draw your strength. When I say, Lord, under your authority, under your wisdom, under your guts to do it, God, I will follow you. Because the reality is is that God has given you some very big blessings. And some of the biggest blessings in your life, like the children that you raise, and the friends that you have, and the work that you have, and the money that you have, the worst thing we can do is take control of them instead of take charge of them. Make sense? So the, the next one I have a little bit of a video clip for, and that is to never lower the standard. And this clip is kind of short, but it absolutely illustrates the point I'm trying to make. LeBron James. (laughs) Bottom line, if you have to lower the goal, it's not a slam dunk, right? (laughs) Like, dunking off a six-foot hoop is not impressive. I can do that, okay? It's not impressive. And I think that we do this with God as well. We see the standards of who God is and who God has called us to be. And we say, that ain't happening. And we lower the goal so that we can meet his standard. Uh, We lower the goal uh, morally. 
We lower it sexually. We lower it relationally so that we can meet the standard. But we're dunking off a six-foot hoop. Like, that doesn't make any sense. In Exodus, it talks about this. Exodus 19, verse 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. He says, if you will keep my covenant, the covenant that he's talking about is that old agreement. And nestled within the old agreement are the wonderful Ten Commandments. And these are guardrails that God put in place so that we could be holy, so that we could be near him. And holiness is all throughout Scripture. Leviticus 11:45, For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy, because I am holy. And you'd say, well, that's just the old agreement. We're under the New Testament. Okay, First Peter 5, first one. It says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For scripture says, you must be holy because I am holy. That's a lot of holy, okay? And we are imperfect people, aren't we? And I think that sometimes we miss this because we are people of the gospel. And when we focus so much on what's happening on this side of the chart, we forget that Christ came to fulfill the old agreement and put in place a new agreement, one that we're able to have victory in, amen? One where we're able to experience freedom in Jesus' name. However, the New Testament and the Old Testament, they still are fulfilling the same goal, to be holy as I am holy. So no matter if it's the Old Testament or the New, God still wants us to be more like him. And and the standard does not lower. And and I think that it's interesting because we look at the the Ten Commandments and we say, oof, I do like seven in a day. (laughs) Give me an hour, you know? Uh, But God put these rules in place not to condemn us, not to judge us, but actually to protect us. Because we serve a God who has the heart of a father who is still trying to protect from day one when we chose to eat the fruit. And that's because rules bring protection. Uh, They bring protection. When you are driving down the interstate and there is a car coming the other direction, what keeps them from hitting you? Rules and a little white line down the center of the road. Rules that I'm not going to hit oncoming traffic. You know, rules are everywhere. Parents, when you told your kids not to touch the stove, was it because it would be really inconvenient if they did? No, maybe a little. Uh, (laughs) No, because it's going to hurt them, and you want to protect them. Um, I grew up in the country in South Dakota, so, like, complete, I wouldn't say wasteland, but just abyss of green grass and... Uh, my parents, they had a small acreage outside, and so it took probably four hours to mow, if that gives you the size of the yard. And in the middle of this yard, we had a drainage ditch that stretched around the property. And drainage ditches are pretty important in South Dakota, because if you get a flood or if you get too much rain, it means the water goes into the 
drainage ditch, not your house. And my siblings, who are seven and eight years older than me, they saw this as an opportunity. Like, we got a river in the backyard. We got to go swimming. And my dad kept telling them, do not swim in the drainage ditch. Like, please do not go out there. And, and they, you know, nodded their head and agreed. Well, they got to the age where they could babysit themselves <laughs> on, like, grocery runs and stuff. And so my parents went to the grocery store, and my dad tells this best, but he comes back, and my siblings are, like, waist deep in this water. And he pulls them out, probably by their hair, I don't know, <laughs> pulls them out, gets the hose out, and hoses them off outside. Come to find out the reason the drainage ditch was flooded was the septic tank overflowed. <laughs> See, rules, they are meant to protect. <laughs> uh, and, and they went against those rules, and they were not protected. They were waist deep in poo water. Like, that's disgusting, and I love it because I was too young to do it, too. This is great. Uh, but, but rules are always meant to protect us. Uh, they aren't meant to subdue you or hurt you. It's exactly quite the opposite. This is the heart of the Father. He wants the very best for your life. And in Exodus 20, when he, he talks through the Ten Commandments, uh, Jesus, this is a wonderful illustration of how an Old Testament is fulfilled and upheld in the New Testament. Jesus, he summarizes the, the Ten Commandments this way in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all of your mind. The first four commandments are about loving God. He says those standards are still there. And the second half of those uh, commandments are summarized in this, love your neighbor as yourself. All throughout the Bible, the charge from God has not changed. We are still called to be holy as he is holy. The standard has not been lowered. And it's natural for us to see the goal and to lower it to something where we want it to be. And let me tell you, when God Almighty is in the equation, he sets the standard as where holiness is, not where we want it to be. And what happens is this gap. And man, this is probably the most beautiful gap ever. Because it points out where we are and how great our God is. How good our God is. And you'd say, well, if this is all how far I can get, how do I fill the gap? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you can't fill the gap. And we're going to talk about this gap uh, next week. But first we have to get this solidified. Never lower the standard. Never lower the standard so that you can look better. Never lower the standard so that you can sleep at night. God's holiness is a hoop that's sitting at 12 feet. <laughs> Never lower the standard so that you can meet it. And the last one we find not in Moses, but in the leader that follows him, Joshua. Joshua 23, verse 5, it says, This land will be yours, for the Lord your God will himself drive out all the people living there now. Wouldn't that be so messed up? You get to the promised land and there's already people sitting up there. <laughs> like, come on. And he says, no, I'm going to drive out all of these people. He says, you will take possession of their land just as the Lord your God promised you. 
So be very careful to follow everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning to the right or to the left. He basically says the two first never statements. Never confuse in control with in, in charge, and never lower the standard. And then continuing on, it says, make sure you do not associate with other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now, for the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has yet been able to defeat you. Listen to this. Each of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy, for the Lord your God fights for you, just as he has promised. See, this, this task was not humanly possible. Uh, they were in bondage for 400 years. You think if it was humanly possible, they would have done it? In this scripture, it says one warrior can overcome a thousand. That's not even possible unless you have the favor of God on your side. And the favor of God is what happens when God fights for you. And so we find our last never statement, never underestimate God's favor. Never underestimate what happens when God fights for you. Never underestimate when God's grace and mercy are involved. You know, so often we want the Lord to fight for us, for us to have favor in our marriage, in our church, in our family, in our finances. We want us to have favor. But let me tell you what, the problem is never with God's favor. It is always with our faith. With our faith that says, I will trust you with my finances, even though it looks sketchy. Now, I will trust you with my children, even though that's going to be really difficult. I will trust you with the big mountain that's in front of me, even though all I have is like a hammer and, a, and like a bucket of rocks. I will trust you regardless. Do you underestimate God's favor? You underestimate the fact that God will fight for you. Because listen, we serve a God that says, I will fight your battle before you even get there. Let that settle in your soul. Because if that truth is settled within us, we will live differently. Um, if that truth is settled within us, we will not confuse in charge within control. A lot of times when you confuse in charge within control, it's because we say, well, God's not in control, so I may as well should be. You know, we will not uh, lower the standard. Usually when we lower the standard, we say, well, that's the only way that I'm going to be able to be a Christian still. And if we can settle in our hearts that we serve a God that fights for us, everything else falls into place. So I'm going to invite the worship team up, and uh, I want to invite you guys all to take a posture of prayer this morning. Um, whether that is kneeling where you are, standing, uh, coming down to the altar, but uh, as they're getting set up, I want to invite you to take that posture right now. So go ahead and take that.
And I want to ask you a couple things as we are here. This morning, of those three nevers, if the Holy Spirit were to tap you on your shoulder, which one would they be very, very interested in? Have you confused in control with in charge? Have you taken grasp of some big things in your life that the Lord said, trust me with? Have you lowered the standard? God told you where holiness was and you aren't looking at him or looking like him anymore. But you've made exceptions. Or do you find yourself underestimating his favor? Do you believe that God can and will fight for you? Or has that become a fairy tale? Lord Jesus, I am blessed to know that you are a God that deals with your children. Lord, that you knew exactly where we stand before we walked in the building. God, you know the area of our life that we struggle to let go of. God, where it seems more reasonable to be in control rather than in charge. Lord, and if Moses and the Israelites are any, any lesson for us to learn, it's a lesson of trusting you because our God is able Lord, maybe we have found that we lowered the standard and we don't even know when it happened or how it happened, but our lives have started to look less and less like you. God, we've lowered the standard in our, our, our integrity. We've lowered it uh, in the material things that we hold. We've lowered it in our relationships. God, and we have lowered holiness to where we can get a slam dunk not where it actually is. God, and maybe we have underestimated how strong you are, how big you are, and how you are still fighting for us. Jesus, I pray wherever we find ourselves this morning, God, that you would deal with us like a father. Lord, that you would teach us the way of your holiness and that we would be able to pursue it relentlessly. God, that we would be able to see uh, the hoop where it stands. Lord, that we would be able to see the gap between who we are and how good you are. Lord, and that we would rest in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ this morning. God, I pray that as we, we end on this song, I surrender, Lord, that, that you would let it be our prayer. God, that you would let your favor and the reality that you fight for us settle deep within us that we might be enabled to see your kingdom come in this world because of it. Jesus, I ask that you would remove any hindrance. God, because your rules, they are just meant for our freedom. Lord, we love you so much, and we ask that you would be a part of our ending song today and that you would deal with us. In Jesus' name, amen.